0: <laughs> all right, Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, if you are tuning in live online, please know we're having internet connections here at the church, so if we lose connection, that will be really bad, but you'll at least know why, okay, so we are having uh, issues here. All right, a couple of things, Matthew chapter 24, before we get started, a lot of things, all right. Uh, Today uh, starts a new week for uh, the Bible Study Exercise uh, podcast series. Uh, We'll we'll still be in Matthew chapter 24. The curriculum for this week, if I can open the curriculum, here we go, covers Matthew 24, 15 through 22. Matthew 24, 15 through 22. As far as what you need to do, really our focus is still going to be on Matthew uh, 24, Uh, verses 1 through 14, instead of 15 through 22. But the only thing I need you to do this week is continue to do the work on Matthew 24, 1 through 14, that I've given everyone, chapter summary method on the whole chapter. All of those things that we've already talked about over and over and over. Some of the additional things we've looked at. Just uh, use the curriculum, Matthew 24, 15 through 22, read it look at it, and we'll probably do some podcast episodes in, in regards to it. But that's where they have, they, they moved quickly through 1 through 14, all right? One week, and they were already on to the next section, which I understand. We're, remember, we are a week ahead. We're a week ahead, so we can, uh, we can go slow and do whatever we need to do, all right? Now, with all of that said, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, and I need you to write down... This is going to be very important. One, two, three, four, five. Five key sections to Matthew chapter 24. Five key sections. We've talked about this in podcast episodes. We're going to talk about it again tonight because I think these are, I mean, I think the whole chapter hinges on these five key sections. All right? Everybody ready? Matthew 24. The first one is Matthew 24 verses 1 through 4. Matthew 24 verses 1 through 4. Matthew 24 verses 1 through 4. All right, everybody ready? Let's read it. Matthew 24 starting in verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to shew him or show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I see unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Stop right here. Why is this a key section in understanding Matthew 24? The setting. It, set, it gives us the setting, which identifies that the focus here is on the temple that was standing when Jesus spoke and the destruction of that temple, which we know occurred when? 70 A.D. This is absolutely key. All right. That's how come if anyone ever quotes anything in Matthew 24 and they ignore that setting, you, you've got to, I mean, you've got to, I'm sorry, you've got to disregard what they're saying if they're ignoring that setting, okay? That's just, we saw in the curriculum, they, they acknowledged that setting for about three seconds and then basically turned everything to a futuristic interpretation, ignoring the historical context. Even though they acknowledged it, it was only like, they just, they just kind of, just a passing acknowledgement. Hey, 70 A.D., And then boom, future, 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 us, 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 and forget all about them. And it's and you can't can't let anyone do that to Matthew 24. What's another thing that's so key in this section? We have the setting. We have the setting in Matthew 24, 1 through 4, but there's one other key element here. The warning. Do not be deceived, which I find it so ironic that that's the first warning because I think so much deception, whether intentionally or unintentionally, occurs with Matthew 24 being mishandled, misapplied, misinterpreted. And therefore, that is a key element that when you're reading Matthew 24, just keep telling yourself, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. All right? And the best way to keep you from being deceived is not to forget the setting. The setting is key in understanding, and the setting is key in protecting. All right? The setting is key in understanding, the setting is key in protecting you from being deceived. I I cannot stress that enough, okay? Everybody got that? All right. What do you think the second key section is? The second key section, the first one is Matthew 24, 1 through 4. The second one, does anybody know? Anybody can guess. Come on, what do you think the next key thing is in Matthew 24? And I know you don't want me asking you, but I'm just going to, because this is all about observation, observation, observation. Okay, we stopped in verse 4. I can tell you this, it's not 5, it's not in 6, it's not in 7, it's not in 8, it's not in 9, it's not in 10, it's not in 11, it's not in 12, it's not in 13. There you go! Okay, there you go. I had to help you. Why? What happens in verse 14? Let's read it. Matthew 24, 14. Matthew 24, 14. I keep saying Matthew 25, I think. Matthew 24, 14. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached, and all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Why is 14 such a key section? Yeah, the problem is we don't perceive that as occurring. Now, preterists say it did. Okay, just so that we know, but it it could be that 2414, the reason it's key, this could be the transition verse, where we transition from everything that relates to 70 AD, and from this point it jumps to referring to something in the future. This is a key verse. If we can prove that it happened in seven, before 70 AD, then we have, the transition would have to occur somewhere later. If we can't prove that it was fulfilled before 70 A.D., then the transition happens, well, we don't know. I mean, if, if we prove that it was there, it has to come later. If we prove that it wasn't, then this would be the key verse and where it jumps. Does that make sense? Either way, this is a key verse. Does everybody understand that? Okay, all right. What do you think the third key section is? What do you think the third key section is? What do you think? Well, uh, I, I, I'm, I have not told you where the key section is, so I, I'm not... What, what do you think? you think 15 through 20? Is that, is, was that a guess or was that a, a guess? Okay. So we have 24, 1 through 4, 24 verse 14, and then 24 just verse 15 by itself. And why is 15 a key verse or a key section? 24.15 reads, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth let him understand. Why is this key? Well, if verse 14 was fulfilled, listen, somewhere before 70 A.D., Then the question would be Was verse 15 fulfilled in 70 AD? Now, you see where this becomes problematic. If we say 14 wasn't, but 15 was, then trying to figure out the timeline here becomes very, in other words, it's not in any kind of uh, timeline order. Do you see the issue? All right? Well, I'm saying if 14 was fulfilled before 70 AD and then 15 isn't, then it's not in a chronological order. So then we can't figure out where the transition verse is. If 14 wasn't fulfilled before, or if it was fulfilled before 70 AD and in verse 15 was, was fulfilled before 70 AD, then it means the transition verse has to happen where? Somewhere later. So this is your key. And another key thing about verse 15, it's, it's, real, it's a prophecy in Daniel, which could we, we may have to figure out where this is and go what else was said in that prophecy. Right. right? And so we'll have to figure that out. Does that make sense? Everybody understand that? Okay, so so wait, what's the first key section? Twenty-four, one through four. Number two, 24 verse. 14, 24, 15, and now what's the next one? What's the next one? Verse 34, 24, 34, 24, 34. Verily I see unto you, this generation shall not pass until... All these things be fulfilled. That's a pretty significant verse, is it not? (laughs) Because if we say that that generation is the generation he's referring to, then guess what that means? Verse 14 and 15, that we immediately may have said, well, that did not happen. Well, guess what? It did. Okay, all right? Unless this generation is not referring to this generation. Then it messes up the whole... (laughs) Right. And then that becomes very problematic because if it's not that generation, well, wait a minute. Every generation has seen earthquakes, plagues, famines, and war. So now the whole chapter becomes almost impossible to interpret. This becomes majorly problematic. Okay, does everybody see that? Uh, Because to identify that generation becomes very... I mean, how do you identify... I mean... At, uh, and verse 34. Oh, well, yeah, he does talk about a parable. Good point. That's a good point. But but I'm saying, it could be. But, I, but I, what I'm saying is, at least initially, this verse is critical because we have to at least figure out who the generation is. right? right. So I'm not, I'm not offering an interpretation right now. I just want you to realize how key this is. If you identify it as that generation, then guess what? Verse 14 and 15 had to be fulfilled. If you change the generation, then how do the rest of the signs fit to whichever generation you assign it? Does that make sense? All right. All right. Then one more. What's next? Mm-hmm. What section is that? Starting in verse 36. All right. Look at verse uh, twenty-four, thirty-six. What happens? But... Of the days and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's typically applied to what? The second coming. Don't we always immediately apply that to the second coming? Right? Well, that could be applied to 70 AD. Right? Okay? But as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Why is this verse uh, critical? Because what, ev- what does everyone always do with this verse? Okay, well, okay, let's work through this. Everyone, everyone, look, if I if I ask what does everyone do, if you don't know, what would you typically do? Just always say what you would do with it because probably it's going to be the typical answer, okay? All right? just the way it typically works because you've been influenced probably by the Christianity you've been around. So let's go there. Verse 36, almost everyone does what with that? Refer to the second coming. Number two, but as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of son, the Son of Man may be. What do people, people typically do with that? They typically say, oh, the days of Noah was very wicked. And they apply that the wickedness of the days of Noah will be the wickedness that will represent the second coming. Once again, it's connected to the second coming, not 70 AD. Yes. It's almost always. like By this point in Matthew 24, people have already forgotten 70 AD even existed. At this point, they're so far into their eschatology that seventy the the victims of seventy A.D. could walk by them and they would like, what happened to you guys? Okay, uh, we died in seventy A.D. Oh, I must have missed that. Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, you're reading the chapter about it. No, I'm not. I'm reading a chapter about the second coming. Okay, Does that literally that's what happens. So here's the thing: everyone thinks that this is referring to the wickedness. Of the days of Noah, is that what it's referring to? Yeah, we're not going to know the times, right? But then it says, "But as the uh, what I want you to see is, but as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be." Everyone connects verse thirty-seven not only to the second coming, but they connect it to the wickedness of the days of Noah. Look at the next verse doesn't mention the wickedness. It was an unknown day that was coming, but what were they doing in the meantime? That's the key. They were, in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. In other words, that the days of Noah was a time of what? No concern. There was no worry. There was no concern that a flood was going to happen, that destruction was going to happen. Now, yes, it talks about the coming of the Son of Man. So you could say, well, maybe this is referencing the second coming. But I'm saying everyone removes 70 AD from this. And, were, and then and so immediately everyone preaches that, oh, in the last days, it's going to be as wicked as the days of Noah. That's not what's described there. It's describing that the days of Noah, no one, did, no one had any concern of what? Spiritual judgment or coming judgment. So it's going to be a time where no one is worried about coming judgment. Now, did that apply to 70 AD? Or is that a reference to the future? Now look at what happens next. Right? Here's what happens next. You see, this is a very important section. Look what happens. Thinking caps on. Okay, here we go. So they, uh, nobody knew what was going to happen until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Everybody got that? And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Now, what, what do you need to answer in regards to this section? Obliviousness. Okay, Seth, Seth said obliviousness. Right. People are just oblivious to this situation. That's a good way of putting it. All right. Well, what's, what's key about this section that there's one there and one taken away? What, what's, the, what's the answer you must seek for this section? Okay. Who is the person taken away? Right. The, the, were taken away. the damned were taken away. And those, in the ark were left. and those in the ark were left. So here the one taken away is the one taken away in judgment, not in, not in rapture. This is not a rapture passage, it appears. Not only that, when you make it a rapture, what do you remove from the context? Once again, you're removing it from what? 70 A.D. All right? So this is the idea that the ones taken, remember, it gives us the description from the flood. What does it exactly say about the flood? Took them all the way. All the way are the ones left outside of the ark. Then he describes these examples where there's two people. One is taken, the other one is left, seeming to be the one taken is the one taken in judgment. Now, the pushback is, no, 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 no. The ones left are the ones who died in the flood, the one taken away, were the ones swept away uh, in the waters on the ark. But I don't, re- I don't read it that way, okay? But I'm just saying, this is, this is no, okay, again, Christians can't agree on anything, so we just have to acknowledge there's going to be disagreement here, okay? But you see why this is critical? Oh yeah, that's always pointed as a rapture. And everyone immediately removes it from where? 70 AD. That's when I keep putting it. It keeps being removed from 70 AD. Alright? So what are the key sections? Verses 1 through 4. Why is it significant? Context and warning. Number two? 2414. Possible transition. Possible. 15 possible transition. The problem with these two is either they have been fulfilled or if they've not been fulfilled. If 14 hasn't, but 15 has, then we're out of order, which then creates all kinds of hermeneutical challenges. Everybody see that? What's significant about verse 35? Or 34, I should say. Well, then if 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 all of these things have been fulfilled for that generation, then... Okay, if it has it, you, you see, all, with all kinds of different issues there, right? But this generation, and then what's significant about 24, 36 and following? Days of Noah. Who's taken? Who's left? What is this referring to? All right, everybody got all of that. Everybody good? All right. Now, I, I could just stop right there and call it a night, but that—that that was that was not even the original intent of the message. That's just trying to give you. That's kind of doing the Bible study for the Bible study exercise for everyone participating. I want you to just think and think and think and think and think and think and think think about those verses. Live in those verses. Know those verses. And, again, what are we doing? Observational exercise on the chapter. Observational exercise on the chapter. All right. Everybody ready? Now, thinking caps on. It's time to bring in the preterist. It's time to look at this from a preteristic point of view, from preterism. And what, what's the basic concept of preterism? Most, of, most, biblical, most to all biblical prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. All right? Everybody remember that? Now, just so that we know here, um, the, they're going to basically be borrow or using the preterism as put forth by James Stuart Russell, which we talked about him, and we, we got the dates and everything. him. That's what they're going to be basically going to be discussing. All right? Everybody remember that? Okay. Um, all right. I'm going to just jump into this because of time. They're, gonna, they're, they're involved in a discussion at this point in this book uh, about what, how do we understand the questions the disciples ask Jesus. Remember, he says, hey, everything's going to be destroyed, and they come. And according to Matthew, we think we can break it down to how many questions? Three. All right? What are the three in Matthew? When? when? Uh, what's the sign? What's the sign? And. and the end of the age, or the end of the world? All right. Now, end of the age is a. I just gave an interpretive uh, there. It go end of the world because that's how it's written. Okay. All right. Does everybody got that? We'll have to look up uh, translations in a minute. All right. So they're talking about this, and guess who they're going who they're getting ready to quote. They're getting ready to quote James Stuart Russell. So we're reading a book written by R.C. Sproul, who is a preterist, borrowing from Russell, who is the preterism that, in a sense, he's adopting and using. Now, they start with quoting Calvin. Calvin, John Calvin, he viewed the questions when the questions of the disciples, when they come to him, he regarded that the disciples basically had an erroneous assumption that the destruction of the Jerusalem would coincide with the coming of Christ and the end of the world. Calvin believed that the disciples were just wrong. That they came going, hey, so when is this going to happen? And when is the end of the world? And that their assumption was that the world would end at the same time. Calvin believed their assumption was incorrect. That's how Calvin understood it. Does Does that make sense? All right. This means that Jesus was answering a question that contained false assumptions. So Calvin thinks the way we have to understand this is that when Jesus starts answering this question, he realizes that he's answering a question that, that contains false assumptions. All right? Somebody anybody got that? Or yes, no? All right? That's how Calvin perceives this. Okay? Well, the reason this is being pointed out is because Russell completely disagrees. So this is what Russell is going to say. The preterist view of of J. Stuart Russell or James Stuart Russell differs sharply from the view of Calvin. Russell argues that the disciples' assumption was absolutely correct with one qualifier. The disciples were not asking about the end of the world, but the end of the age. end of the age or end of the world so guess what we need to do we got to do a little work here yes we got to do a little bit of work here All right. someone just asked a question about the ones taken away I will have to get to that I'll see if we can get back to that in a minute right now I just wanted everyone to see those sections I'm not going to offer any massive interpretation yet there but I think that is an interesting parallel where you're putting that and we'll have to see. So we'll get to that. All right. So we got to go back to the question. So back to Matthew, 20, one of our key sections, right? All right. The disciples come. They're like, hey, what when, when, are we, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So let's do a couple of things. First, if you want to do this with us online, do this. You go to Google, tap in Matthew 24, that's verse 3. Go to Google, Matthew 24, 3. Wait until the entry shows up for BibleHub.com, which is number, I think, 4. And why do we want to go to uh, BibleHub.com for Matthew 24, 3? We want to see all of the different translations. right? Because some say this should be translated, the end of the world. Russell believes it should be referenced as the end of the age. Well, guess what? The New Living, uh, the New International Version, how it translates it. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the the age? NIV says that way. Well, we'll well, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get. We'll get to Strongs. Yeah, not right now, right now. Okay, yeah, okay. We, we, we always start first with the. Why, why do I start with the English translations first? Why? Just, just from a Bible study practice. Why do I start there first? Uh, I, all the time. But in many cases, uh, we pull up all the English translations. I do that all the time. I, okay. No, no, to see if there's agreement. If every translation says end of the world, okay, if everyone says end of the world, and maybe I can find something in Strong's or in the interlinear that says age, but every translation says world, well, then I have to stop and go, well, why would the translators who probably know the original language better than I do all go with world? It's it's to... It's to see what others who translate it. It shows you the translation process, right? That, that sometimes gives you great insight. Oh, okay, wait a minute. Let's say you have 15 English translations and 14 different ones. What does that tell you? There's no agreement. So what does that tell you to do? Be careful, right? So, I want, so immediately we go to the very first English translation and I see end of the age. Going with Russell. Now, it, it is the NIV. I, I, don't, I don't trust the NIV as a translation, okay? I trust, I trust it almost as a paraphrase at times. It's very liberal in its way it's, it translates it. It's like, it's not so much about word for word, and, and all translations use dynamic equivalents, but sometimes they're just looking for an equivalence here, and it's like, whoa, I, I need, I want it to be as precise as possible, even if it's unreadable. Right. I would rather it be unreadable than readable, but not precise. Right. Precision is more important than readability and Bible study. okay, And reading, you like it to be readable. But in Bible study, I need it to be precise. Right. okay, So we have one. So keep track of how many we have one that says end of the age. Number two, New Living Translation. Later, Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will all of this happen? What sign will signal your return? At the end of the world. At the end of the world. All right? Has everybody got that? So now we have one one and one. Number three, ESV. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of the coming and the end of the age? Alright, now we have two. Two and one. Oh boy. Now, the one thing we see is, the the, the argument either means to be end of the world or end of the age. Which seems to be the the disagreement between Calvin and Russell. Alright, so... Let's 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 go through this. All right. How many? How many so far? We got two and one, right? New it, new I, uh, the new IV, the NIV and the ESV is end of the age. The new living translation is end of the world. What's next? Berean study Bible. While Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. They said, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the the end of the age? Uh oh. We're definitely going in a certain direction, are we not? Okay. Berean literal Bible. As he he was sitting upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him in private, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what is the sign of your coming, and the consummation of the age. All right, how many do we have now? Okay, we've only got one for the end of the world so far. All right. Now, you know what, you know what, this is very important. Whenever you read a commentary, sometimes when you're reading older commentaries, what did they not, they did not have access to? Multiple translations. In many cases, they only had a couple. And we don't even know what original manuscripts may or may not have been available to them. They definitely just couldn't grab their phone and look up the antilinear. Right, okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. King James has the end of the world, so that gives us how many now for end of the world? Two. All right. Now we go to the New King James. End of the age. The New King James changes it. There's something here that people like the end of the. Why? Why are so many translating it this way? Right. That's the New American Standard. End of the age. New American Standard 1995, end of the age, American Standard 1977, end of the age, the Amplified Bible, completion or end, completion or consummation of the age, the Christian Standard Bible, age, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, end of the age, American Standard Version. End of the world. We finally have another one, to end of the world. So we've got three, end of the world. How many do we have for age now? No. Okay. okay, like nine, I think. Y'all were supposed to be keeping count, so it's a number. Don't expect me to get it right. Okay, all right? Amer- American Standard, end of the world. Uh, Aramaic Bible and plain English, end of the world. Contemporary English version, end of the world. Dewey Reams Bible, there's more of a Catholic one. Consummation of the World. Good News Translation, end of the age. The International Standard, end of the age. Literal Standard, end of the age. New American, end of the age. Net Bible, end of the age. New Revised, end of the age. New Heart English Bible, end of the age. (laughs) Okay, I think you're getting the idea. In fact, the more I go down, end of the age, end of the age, end of the age, end of the age. The end of the age far outnumbers the end of the world. It's not even close. Okay, I I literally, okay, so 14 versus what, 2 or 3? 2 or 3? Our six for end of the world. Okay. All right. So far, far more goes the other direction. Now, why is such... De- now, immediately, what does that tell you? Oh, man. Okay. Oh, 21. 21. Yeah, yeah, there's so many translations, it's not even funny. Okay. So, now let's do this. Let's go to the Blue Letter Bible app. Let's just see. Let's just take a look. Now, some of this may be based off translation different or uh, manuscript differences, okay? But that's okay. I can't believe we're already going to run out of time. Man, okay, it's, yeah, we did have technical difficulties, but it uh, Matthew twenty-four, all right, verse uh, three. Go to the interlinear and the coming end of the world. The world, world, here is, Oh wait, I can't. I can't play it for you right now. Um, well, hang on. Let me do this. Hang on. Let me close the speaker app. All right, here we go. Now I can turn the volume back up. Here we go. It is this Greek word. Strong's G one sixty five. I own. I own. I own. I own. Choose how many times. 128 times in the King James. How many times is it translated ever? 71. How many times world? 38. Then, then, then you have all of these others with all of these mixture. but age two times. That's interesting. That would make an argument that it should be translated world and not age. Yes? Now, this is using the manuscripts that the King James would be based off of, right? But the new King James translators changed it to age. Which is interesting. The outline for biblical usage: forever, an unbroken age, perpetuity of time, eternity, the world, universe, and then notice number three: period of time or age. Oh man, uh, what I don't know about you. Do you get frustrated at this point? I get frustrated. Why do you get frustrated? There, there's, there's a lot of just a possible, well, maybe. Yeah, and it, world is one of the. But age is also as well. But I went to the ESV, which translates age. It's the same amount of usage for world. Okay, okay, see? Yeah, and the ESV is the same Greek word. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, but that's. Oh. I, I want something more definitive. Yes. Now, here let's let's go back and see what, do what, does anybody know why this is a big deal? You don't know why this is a big deal. Does anybody know why it's a big deal? It's the world the world. It's, it's Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, big big time difference. It's for it to be age. Okay, if it's the end of the world, either The disciples are just wrong in their assumption, right? Okay, guys, you're just, they just think it's going to be the end. It's not going to be really the end of the world. Or, no, they, they are correct, but they didn't say when is the end of the world. When is the end of the age? What age are they referring to? I think Bobby asked one time, could it be the age of The Jews, the age of Judaism, I think that's the way you stated it, I I can't remember. Well, that that would make some sense. In a sense, Judaism's age is getting getting ready to come to an end when? In 70 AD, so therefore it doesn't have to be the end of the world. Right, you see why this is important? Let's let them explain it. I don't like to speak, you know, I I don't like to speak for other theological systems. I try to let them do their own speaking. So here we go. All right, everybody ready? All right, so, Calvin believed the disciples had an erroneous assumption, okay, that the world was actually going to end. Russell believes, no, they did not have an incorrect assumption, but what does he believe? They weren't asking about the end of the world, they were asking about when? The end of the age. The distinction is critical, not only to Russell, but to virtually all preterists. This distinction is critical to preterism. Critical to preterism. Now, let me stop right here. Okay, let me stop right here. I got to do a little bit of preaching, okay? right, so I've set down the book. I do a little bit of preaching where I can (coughs) pound on the pulpit. All right, you ready? This is what happens here. This is why a lot of preachers ignore this kind of stuff. Because you get into this and a lot of people are like, who cares? You can't say who cares. Because it's literally about how to interpret God's word. So what a lot of people just struggle, who cares? And I'm just going to go with whatever I want. Who are you to go with whatever you want? This is critical because this determines how we interpret the entire chapter. Now, is it difficult? Does it give you a headache? Can it get frustrating? Yes, but welcome to a religion where God's revelation is in written form. If you don't like reading and studying, Christianity is the wrong religion. Okay, it's, it's, I don't know what else to tell you. Right? That's the way it is. Or you can go join a Catholic church and just let them tell you. Well, true. I mean, it, it, that, that's one of the key elements. But again, it can be translated into the age. So when, it, when is it supposed to be the end of the age? But here's, here's what they have to say. All right, everybody ready? So everybody see the distinction here? Here we go. So everybody understand why this is important? So he says it's important to every preterist. It's important to everyone. Because we want to know what? The correct way to interpret it. Okay? It's not just, I, I hate when they say, this is critical to the Calvinists, this is critical to the Armenian. No, it's critical to anyone who wants to understand the Bible. I hate when it's critical to one particular side. It's critical to everyone, all right? Because we've got to figure out what the truth is. But, obviously to the Preterist. The end in view is not the end of all time, but to the end of the Jewish age. That's the Preterist view. That's Russell. That's preterism, really. All right? So what do they believe the end there is? All right? Uh, someone just asked, is Acts... Well, we'll have to get there in a minute because of time. I can't go to Acts 1-6 right now. We'll have to do that. I'll see if I can get to it. All right? Okay, so... That's... That's what they're trying to figure out. When is the end of the world or when is the end of the age? Now, you know what bothers me so much? Well, what makes this so irritating here? That now your theology can determine your interpretation. That's bad. And you almost have enough evidence to go whichever direction you want to go. I don't like that. <clears throat> I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Because it's too easy for me to go. Well, here's my inter- here's my theology. So there's my interpretation. And look, it can be translated in- end of age. Could be translated into the world. In fact, it's translated into the age by almost majority of English translations. So you could definitely make a good argument. And I, all of those translation committees must have had a reason to translate it that way. Yeah, there's got to be something about it. Now, did they translate it that way? Okay, I was going to say, did they translate it this way because they felt the language drove them there or because of a theological belief? That, that's always a question, you know? But you got to be careful with that or you then end up not trusting the Bible, and which is dangerous, right? Yeah, It is generally assumed, Russell writes, that the disciples came to our Lord with three different questions relating to different events separated from each other by a long interval of time. That their first inquiry, when shall these things be, had reference to the approaching destruction of the temple. That the second and third questions, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, refer to events long after the destruction of Jerusalem, in fact, not yet accomplished. Now, I I agree that many people understand it that way, that they're really asking about three separate events. Right? But if we don't interpret it that way, then that... that, But again, you could go with Calvin and say, maybe they're asking for three separate events, but they're wrong to assume that these events are related. Right? So, how, how can... What can we do here? Russell's voice has dissent... Russell voices his dissent by arguing that all three gospel writers correctly incorporate all three things within the same general historical event. All right, this is very important. What Russell's going to argue is, wait a minute, guys. You can't just look at Matthew 24. See, this is why I wanted everyone to do what Twyla did. outline everything that happens in each account. Because I knew Russell was going to go this direction. What does Russell want us to look at? Wait a minute. You can't just read Matthew 24. you got to look at Mark and Luke. How do they handle the questions? Well, go to Mark 13. Mark 13. Right? Verse 4. What is Mark 4? How do they ask the questions? They only say, "What shall this? What? What shall these? When shall these things be?" And what is the sign? What does Luke do? In chapter twenty one, verse seven. When shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? What does Mark and Luke do not include? The end of the world. Now, there's two ways of handling this. How can we handle this? Mark and Luke didn't include it, but we have to add it because Matthew did. Or, what is Russell going to do with it? Let's see what Russell's approach is. What do you think Russell's going to do? Russell, no, he's not going to include it. No, no, that would be, why would he include that? That would be, a, go against preterism. Right? Remember, it can't be end of the world, it's going to be end of the age. Look at how he does this. Russell voices his dissent by arguing that all three gospel writers correctly incorporate all three things within the same general historical event. Mark and Luke makes the questions make the questions of the disciples refer to one event and one time. It is not only presumable, therefore, but uh, it, that, that the questions uh, of the disciples only refer to different aspects of the same great event. In other words, his argument, you put them all together, guess what? They're asking about one event, 70 A.D. They're not asking about the end of the world. They're not asking about the... No, they're, they're talking about one event. That's what they're asking about. All right? The harmonies, this harmonizes with the statement of St. Matthew with those of the other evangelists, and plainly required by the circumstant- circumstances of the case. Clearly, clearly, Russell assumes that the text of Scripture is, in, uh, is inspired, and he approaches the question of harmonizing the gospel accounts of the Olivet Discourse on, the ba- on this basis. Given the trustworthiness of the Bible, it becomes clear that if all three events are merely implicit in the disciples' query in Mark and Luke, the disciples are tied together explicitly in the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples' unambiguous question is a time frame question. The disciples ask, when these things will come to pass and what is the sign of Christ's coming and of the end? Right. Okay. I think what they're going to just focus on in verses 1 through 14. Which, that, which raises questions, well, wait a minute, what is the rest of this, like, what do we do here? But, yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to get into that. So, basically, what is Russell trying to say? Basically, it's one question. When is this going to happen? Okay, and what are the signs? Yeah, I guess we can say two questions. But, in a sense, however, how many questions you want, they're all related to the same event. That in their minds, they're not like, okay, when is that going to happen? And when are you coming back? And when is the end of the world? They're not doing that. They see all these things together, and they're not even, and, the, and by, they're not assuming that the world is going to end. They just realize that this is going to mark the end of a specific period of time or a specific age. That's, that's what's in their mind. They're not thinking of it in any other direction. Now, what's the strength of Russell's argument? What's the strength of that argument? 70. Because the context is seventy A.D., right? That—that's what they're worried about. That in their minds they're not going. Okay, wait, but in my eschatology, and my, my eschatology class, we learned about you know Jesus coming back. No, they don't probably don't even have any recollection of a second coming in the sense of like Jesus coming back. They don't even understand of him. I mean, remember, the disciples are still confused about his death, burial, and resurrection, much less understanding a second coming. Agreed? So it would be weird for them, like, hey, when is that second coming thing going to happen? Now, once Jesus. Now, Seth asked the question look at Acts 1 6. I'll try to uh, bring this in right now. Now, the difference in Acts 1 6. What's the difference in Acts 1 6? He's. Okay, they already got the death, burial, resurrection thing down, okay, right? They got that down, okay? So, they understand that, so that's already resolved. And what do they say in verse 6? They therefore were to come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Okay, that obviously, what are they waiting for? You've, you've died, you've been buried, you've resurrected? They're asking a question that relates to what? All the things in the Old Testament, they're looking for the coming of the kingdom. That's what they're looking for. Okay? They're not looking for the end of the age. They're looking for the coming of the kingdom. That's what they're looking for, right? Okay? And that relates to the Old Testament, which that would have been in their mind. right? Okay? The end of the world and the second coming would rely on them looking for something that they probably don't even quite grasp yet. The, the restoring of the kingdom, they would understand, because they're Jews who know all of those Old Testament prophecies. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. So, that's that's an interesting discussion about. Before the resurrection, they might not have been thinking about him being killed. Oh yeah, they, yeah, they don't even understand the death and resurrection. Yeah, that's that is true. Yeah, before they're, they're all, we, we know they're all confused, right? Every time he gets ready to say something, they're they're like, "What?" They, they don't even understand. He's like, "Hey, I'm gonna die. Hey, I want, who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom?" Uh, I just said, "I'm gonna die." Right? Hey, when, 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 you're, when you're in your kingdom, can my son sit in your... Like, they never ever get that whole death part. They, they completely... Even when Peter hears it, he's like, that can't happen. Right? All right, so, everybody got that? All right. Now, I'm not going to make a judgment on which way to go with this, and here's why. We need something better. So we got to find our, an interpretive key that, that is better than, do we translate this into the world or end of the age? And the reason I say I need something better is because there's too much disagreement over it. And just if I say into the world or end of the age, I, I, don't, I, th- I think we need more. Now, we may end up coming back, but I'm not going to be dogmatic at this point in time. All right? Let's see how far we can get. All right? Jesus begins his answer with a solemn warning against Deception. Matthew records his answers as follows. And Jesus answered and said, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ. And we go on and we see all of his warnings about deceptions and those being offended and all of this. And they go all the way down to verse 13. right? All of those warnings and everything happens. Jesus focuses initially on the perils posed by the appearance of false messiahs. Russell argues that the deceptive claims of those false messiahs was fulfilled in the period between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. False Christ and false prophets began to make their appearance at a very early period of, Christian, of the Christian era and continued to infest uh, the land down to the very close of Jewish history, Right? All the way, we could go in in the time of Pontius Pilate, A.D. 36, one one such appeared in Samaria and deluded great multitudes. There was another during the time of Cuspius, Fadus, F-A-D-U-S, A.D. 45. So there were false messiahs that came in A.D. 36 and in A.D. 45. During the government of Felix, which is 53 to 60 A.D., Josephus tells us the country was full of robbers, magicians, false prophets, and guess what's next? False messiahs. And imposters who deluded the people with promises of great events. So we even have Josephus acknowledging that between 53 and 60, the country was full of this. All right. Calvin agreed that, uh, that a rash of false messiahs arose, arose early in the church age. For shortly after Christ's resurrection, there arose impostors, every one of whom professed to be the Christ, Calvin writes. So Calvin even acknowledged that very early on, there were people running around claiming to be Christ. Um, uh, he writes, And as the true Redeemer had not only been removed from the world, but uh, oppressed by the the things on the cross. And yet the minds of all were excited by the hope and inflamed with the desire of redemption. Those men had in their power plausible opportunity of deceiving. Nor can it be doubted that God permitted such to impose on the Jews who had so basely rejected the son. So Calvin is like, hey, people were so upset about what happened and that he left, they couldn't wait for him to come back. So it was the perfect time for people to go, hey, I'm Jesus. And Calvin believed that part of it was done to impose, basically, judgment on the Jews for rejecting and killing Christ. To confuse them even more. Which they were blinded for a period of time. Now, Though Calvin acknowledged that the problem of false Christ plagued the early church after the resurrection of Christ, he applied the warning to the church of all ages, not limiting it to the church of the first century. Now, this application is quite legitimate, as the appearance of imposters has been a constant problem. The question, however, is this. What significance did Jesus' warning have for and to his immediate hearers? It is one thing for us to ask how Jesus' teaching applies to us. It's quite another to ask what is meant in the original context. We must keep in mind that Jesus was answering questions posed by the disciples, questions about when his previous, about when his previous utterances would be fulfilled. His words were directed to them. Take heed, he said, that no one deceives you. He told his disciples that they would hear of wars and rumors of war and so forth. Now we'll stop we'll stop right here. Okay. Now I am gonna be okay, wait. they go through a lot of things here. Okay, but we'll stop right here because we're gonna run out of time. Here's what I want us to do. All right, everybody got this? All right. Okay. Um okay, uh, Seth asks if there if the uh if the restoring of the kingdom and of the land promises last forever, wouldn't that be a different age? Well, it may be a different age, but that's, they're not asking anything related to Matthew 24. It's a completely different context, different historical setting, different everything. There may be a similarity there, but there, there's difference. Okay, So here's what I want us to do. All right, Matthew 24, everybody ready? All right, the first thing Jesus warns them about, or the first sign he gives them, is for that he, he gives them a warning, and then the sign he gives them is of false Christ and deceivers. Yes? All right. There is no reason under the sun to try to remove that from 70 AD. There's just no reason. All right. Clearly, we, there's too much historical evidence that there were false Christ leading up to 70 AD. All right. And not only that, this is so important. What's the next most critical thing here? If you remove it from 70 AD, what's the relevance of that now? Because how many false Christs have there been since 34, 35 AD? The land was full of them between 46 and 50 AD. There have been false Christs, false Christs, false Christs. We had one here in Texas. David Koresh, he was the reincarnation basically of Jesus. He was the one who could open up the book that was sealed in the book of Revelation. They brought people from Dallas Theological Seminary trying to argue theology with him because he was crazy. crazy. He was gone, okay? okay? He was insane. It didn't work. And it ended in a horrible, tragic way. Okay? So, there's been all kinds of false Christ. So, what I'm saying is, to make that a, a sign for the future, it, another false Christ, there's been 25 billion of them. Okay, I am mean, at a hyperbole, but you get the idea. In other words, if, there, if, if something happens over and 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 over again, for, t- you know... 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years. At some point, the sign is like... Yeah, it's like breathing. I've already I used that illustration in the podcast. I mean, it's like... The sign of Jesus coming is breathing. Okay, well, people breathe every day. Well, that... Yeah. It, does, it doesn't make any sense. So that one clearly happened between 33 and 70 AD. It occurred. It occurred literally. There were literal false Christ. It happened and 70 AD occurred. So there's no reason to rip that out of context and make that applicable for today. Okay? Does that make sense? Now, th- we know what the predators are going to do. They're going to try to put everything in 70 AD. We're willing to listen. This one I'm willing to acknowledge. You got me right in fact i'm glad that they do this because to try to apply it to today it means nothing hey how do i know when jesus is coming back are oh, there going to be false teachers and false prophets and false christ hasn't there been like them for 2000 years yeah but that's your good sign <laughs> that's 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 your good sign okay so that kinda means nothing yeah kinda right yeah, it's better for me to go, no, that was about 70 A.D. it happened. And that's a short period of time for it to occur. 33 to, to basically 69. Just a little over 30 years, right? And a boom, it's over. Okay, that means every false Christ would have been like so significant. Oh, wait, there was a false Christ? Wait, there's another? Oh, man. Okay, something's go. Okay, I think I'm going to move. I'd be like, get, okay, we got to get away from Jerusalem. Okay, I don't. I, there's a place probably called Texas somewhere. We got to get there. Okay, we got to get out of here, right? Because like, hey, hey, did you hear? There's another false cries. I'm t- pack the bags. We got to go. All right. Does that make sense? All right. Okay. That that's where we're going to have to stop. All right. So, okay. So just make sure we understand that. All right. So, they say that that it should be end of the age. If If it is the end of the age, then what is it possibly referencing? The end of the Jewish age. And the Jewish age meaning what? The Jewish control of Jerusalem, temple, sacrificial system, high priest, the tribal divisions, all of those things that make up Judaism that go away, but for some weird reason they seem to be promised to coming back in the future. Right? So, meaning that they may go away, but they're not gone forever. But preterists want them to be gone for (laughs) that. Because a lot of times what's associated with preterism is, all, in many cases, I can't say in every case, it's kind of like Israel is completely forever done, but they're not completely forever done because you can't just go from this and then ignore all the other. See why we went through all those promises? Uh, we went through all those promises because you, because immediately someone would say, well, see, this, this that proves it. That, no. The, the, First of all, there's not even agreement on whether it should be end of the world or end of the age. So let's just make sure we agree, uh, uh, understand that. And so that's why I'm going to do what? I'm just going to set that aside. I got translations say end of the world. If I look in the interlinear, I can argue that it means end of the world. You can't say that it doesn't. In fact, it's translated world way more than age. Only two times for each, even in the ESV and even in the King James. Yeah, and forever more times than world, right? So the end of forever, which would be the end of everything, right? So in other words, what is the end of everything, okay? So, but again, Calvin could be right. The disciples could have all kinds of false assumptions, right? Let's make, okay, let's be fair here. I think we can all agree here. We don't want to be very careful about building a doctrine off questions of those individuals First, building an entire doctrine because clearly they're extremely confused at this point. I mean, we know they're confused at this point. They don't understand his death. They don't understand the burial. They definitely don't understand the resurrection. They're arguing and fighting with each other. It was only until after all of that that they start getting some kind of clue. And even then, they're a little bit perplexed, right? Because they do ask him, hey, like, they still don't understand that he's leaving. They're like, you're here. Where's the kingdom? They're still like and then when they leave they're like uh hey you can go now okay you can go now the same one that was taken away he's going to come back in like manner and they're kind of like uh like now I mean they're still a little bit confused right they're still like we don't understand exactly what just took place where's the kingdom they're probably they're probably walking away going i think we got ripped off Because we didn't get the kingdom. Remember that whole promise in Luke and Matthew that we're going to sit on 12 thrones and rule the 12 tribes? And can you imagine when Jerusalem is destroyed? Can you imagine how just utterly like, wait, how are we going to rule on 12 thrones with him if there's no temple and there's no more Jerusalem and we're no more Israel. Okay? Yeah, I don't even know him. But I'm saying anybody else who had read those things would be like, what is going on? What is going on? It, it would have been so, like, it would be hard. Like, if you could, we, we're, we, we have all the luxury of history and time. Can you imagine trying to be a Christian back there going, what is going on? I mean, you, there'd be a lot of like, okay, this whole thing is just ro- broken. It, Jesus is gone Jerusalem is gone. The Jews are gone. The, the, clearly, some, I'm, I'm so confused. And so you can see why the early church just said that they're done. Okay. okay. Uh, we don't even know about Israel anymore. Just just worry. we got to worry about us. Uh, well, Hebrews was obviously important. It was warning them, right? So what's, what's there? And if you think about that, you can see why the early church would be like, See? Hebrews tried to tell them it was all going away. So now it's about us. right? It's about Jesus. You can see why they would do that. But then someone came along, when, which is absolutely amazing, when you have Darby and some of those who came along before Israel become a nation, and they're like, hey guys, did you, did you read the rest of the Bible? Because Israel's mentioned like all these times and it didn't happen. And they're like, you're crazy. And so, okay, I'm crazy. And the next thing you know, they're like, wait. That's Israel. What just happened? Okay, What just happened? And that's why then a lot of people were like... And then that's when there was an explosion of dispensationalism. Because you could see why there would have been an explosion. they were like, wait. So then... Israel's been there, Israel's been there It's 1948, 58, 68, 78, 90. And then finally people are kind of like, well, maybe this whole Israel thing is not anymore. And then Israel became a very political issue. If you're a Republican, you support. If you're a Democrat, you don't. Israel's mean to the Palestinian. You know? And so then a lot of people are like, this is all too political, so I'm going to wash my hands of it. What's an easy way to wash your hands of it? God's done with Israel and go back to a non-millennial perspective. You can see why there's been so many fluctuations in church history over it. And, but what, what can you never allow to change your theology? What's happening in the world? And so I, I still love the fact that someone was able to go, hey guys, the Bible says Israel. So, but in this particular case, we just got to figure out what, what, what's going on. The the, the original, the initial issue with the false prophets was fulfilled before 70 AD. You can just put, I think you can just put a, a, a fulfilled next to it, right? Well, but we're going to, we're just going to go through, right. We're going to go systematically through each one and see which ones we can say we agree and which ones we can say, well, we don't know. Because we know f- verse 14 is coming and that's where we're going to have an issue. Right. And then 15, we're, we're going to have to see. But I'm just saying we're going to be as fair as we can be. Because if we're not fair, then we're not going to accomplish anything. Does that make sense? So I wanted to get further, but I want us to know those, those sections, all right? So everybody listening online, know those sections, the uh, curriculum. And that's really no more homework this week other than just keep working on it. Just keep working on it. Keep working on it, all right? Wednesday night, we'll, we'll, go, we'll, we'll see what we can finish, all right? We'll see. Wednesday night, we're not going to do any. It's just going to be jump right in. So I, I, when you show up Wednesday, don't go, wait, what are we talking about? All right, What? When did we start Matthew 24? Because then I have to go back and review. So we're just, I'm just, okay. okay. Yeah, somebody's going to have to be ready to go. All right. Does that make sense? All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, there's much disagreement when it comes to your word in Matthew 24. That's no excuse for us to ignore it. But it is a warning that we do everything we can not to worry about which team says what, but to understand your word so that we can correctly apply it, correctly interpret it, and correctly live according to it. The most important warning probably in all of this is take heed that we are not deceived. Yes, that was an immediate warning to them, but the warning against deception goes throughout the entire Bible. We do not want to be deceived by our own misunderstanding or our own theological biases. We want to find the scripture, understand the scripture, and do so for your glory and your honor. And we ask that we do this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said...